0: I want to, to ask you as we get going uh, down the road of our message today, I, I want you to, to try to see in everything we talk about today, try to see God's sovereignty, e- e- everything. And I throw the word sovereignty out there a lot, but I want to make sure that all of us really kind of get and understand what that word really means and that word really is a declaration that God is the ruler, that God is the king, that God is in charge, that nothing ever sneaks up on him, that nothing happens outside of his will, and that he is the Lord of everything, all time, all space, and all matter. And so I want you to see that in, in what we talk about today, really in everything that we talk about. I want you to notice and see his sovereignty. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. And so the first thing I want you to see this morning is His sovereignty. The second thing I want you to see and I want you to think about is what the fullness of time really means and how the fullness of time plays into and meshes with and kind of is, is laid right alongside of God's sovereignty. So what does the fullness of time mean? And I struggled with, the, with kind of the name of today's message between in the shadow of Herod and the fullness of time. And so it's kind of both, because both of them kind of play off of each other. And so what does the fullness of time mean? And it really means that the time was right. The time was right. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. The time was right. Whose time was right? Well, God's time was right. It is His plan. It is, he is in charge of everything. And so it is His, it's all about His timing, and it's His plan, and it's His timeline. The time was right and you've got, if you don't have a worship guide, raise your hand, we'll get you a worship guide too. But we've got a few little fill in the blanks and then the scripture that we're going to walk through today. So first of all though, the time was right religiously, spiritually the time was right. The Jews at the time, and we're talking about when Christ was, was born. We're talking about in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. So the time was right religiously. The Jews uh, at that time, they, had, they were freed from idolatry for quite a while they were freed from idolatry they were looking towards uh, a messiah they had finished the old testament the old testament had been canonized which means it was kind of sealed up and, and you had the scripture the scripture that that Jesus himself used was the old testament and so it had been it had been secure for about 400 years they would created a system, the Jews had a, cre- uh, a system of, of synagogues, uh, a system of religious education, a system of, of religious schools. And all of that uh, kind of made the spreading of the message of Messiah much easier. So, number one, uh, the time was right religiously. Number two, the time was right culturally. The Greek culture, Alexander the Great, about Three hundred years earlier had swept across really the known world and had, and had hellenized the world. that means the Greek culture had kind of, has kind of had kind of a path across the world and that included multiple things it included their their language and their, their language was the common language of the day it 's called the lingua franca it was the common language of the day it was the language of commerce and business and, and it 's a really very expressive language. The Old Testament at that time had been translated into Greek. Well, everybody kind of spoke Greek. Well, why do you translate the Old Testament into Greek? So that the people speaking Greek can read the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, and of course the New Testament was not written yet, so the only Bible you had was written Hebrew and Aramaic and the people that spoke Greek couldn't read it. So it's translated into Greek, made it available to a lot more people. A lot more people. So culturally, and that obviously allowed for the, helped to allow for the, to, for the spread of the message of Christ. So culturally, the time was right. And then, number three, the time was right politically. The Roman Empire was the dominant power in the day. The Roman Empire brought really three things to the table that assisted, that helped, that, that, that really helped the spreading of the gospel. Number one was, is what is called the Pax Romana, that's the, the, uh, the peace, the peace of Rome. Because at that time there was relative peace, not total peace because they were still fighting, but there was relative, it was a lot more a lot more peaceful than it had been for the last probably three or four hundred years. That Roman peace provided social and economic and political stability to that area. That, that relative peace allowed for missionaries like Peter and Paul to travel freely throughout the Roman Empire. So you had the Roman peace. Number two, you had the Lex Romana, which is the Roman law, because the Roman law gave citizens living in the empire many rights that they didn't have before that helped ultimately to spread the gospel. So you had the Lex Romana. And then finally you had the Rio Romana, which is the the roads, the Roman roads. You had during the 400 years or so prior to Christ's birth, you had a road system that was built that connected... Africa to Asia a road two, two main roads one went up the east side of Israel one went up the west side of Israel that connected Africa and Asia and those are the roads the very roads that Paul traveled on had those roads not been there the gospel couldn't have spread the way that it did but when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son so let that be the lens that we kind of view today through. Nothing has happened nor will anything ever happen nor is anything happening right now that is outside of the sovereign will of God. All of those things that were happening in the world in the, really the 2,000 years prior to Christ's birth particularly in the last 400 years before His birth. The language, the roads, the culture, the relative peace All of that is setting up the stage for something. It's getting the stage ready for the coming of the Messiah. And it is an amazing thing, man. Jesus was born on time. He came on time. He came in the fullness of time. He wasn't a moment early. He wasn't a moment late. Now, with all of that said... Christmas is in three days, y'all, if you don't know that. If the ugly sweaters didn't give it away, Christmas is in three days. But the first Christmas was celebrated in AD 336, about 300 years or so after Christ crucified and resurrected. 2019 is really Christmas number 2024-25. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 says this, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. In the days of Herod the king, Herod the great, King Herod. Herod the great was on the throne when Jesus was born. Herod the great died in 4 BC. In the days of Herod the king, there's a whole, whole lot in those seven words. Herod was a big shot, y'all. Herod was a, a, a major player in the day. Herod began rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. He pretty much, in about 19 or 20 B.C., he pretty much had it built. It wasn't finished until the 60s A.D., and then it ultimately was destroyed in 70 A.D. But Herod did that. Herod was a crazy builder. Herod built theaters, and he built racetracks, and he built cities. He built amphitheaters. He built palaces all over the place. (coughs) He built fortresses all over the place. He was one of the greatest builders that ever, ever, Lived. He was one of the most powerful men on the planet at the time. He was an awesome king. And I don't mean awesome good. I mean awesome in scope and in influence and in power and in majesty. Herod was living and ruling in Jerusalem in a palace that he had built. But his greatest threat really came from Cleopatra in Egypt. Y'all, part of this story is that all this really happened. Right? You know, do you really believe that Christ was born of a virgin, do you really believe this story? It happened in real history. Cleopatra—no, no, nobody questions whether Cleopatra lived or not—but people do question who Jesus Christ is. So, so for Herod, people don't question whether Herod lived, but Herod, his greatest threat was from Cleopatra, and so he built a defensive kind of series of uh, of palace fortresses. He built a fortress and a palace in Caesarea. He built one. There was one in Jerusalem. There was one in, and I'm talking about massive palaces in Jericho, in Jerusalem, in Caesarea, um, in in excuse me, in Herodium. And the one in Herodium was called uh, the Herodian. He built one in Masada. They went down from north to south. If you've heard of Masada, Masada is like the Alamo where the last stand was. That palace, though, called the Herodian, was one of the largest palaces in the world. A massive 45-acre-ish complex. Here's what that, that, what the Herodian look like uh, looks like today from a long way off. It's massive, massive. Here is, the next picture is looking down on the Acropolis. The Acropolis is what's on top. So that's what's left. Ain't Google Earth cool. That's, what, that's looking down on the Herodian now. And here's what the palace looked like in the day. And you'll notice, gigantic palace on top of there the, uh, the, the precipice or the, um, or the tower on the left stood about a hundred feet tall humongous palace and here's what's left of the palace today it's actually called Herodian National Park today and so that's what it looks like today it's in ruins but you can see how big and massive and the, how palatial it was at the base of the Herodian was a pool the size of a football field. Massive colonnade. Uh, gigantic, beautiful, lush green gardens like the world y'all had never, ever seen. There was a theater on top of, uh, on, right next to the palace on top of the, of the mountain. There was a theater and there was a, a tomb where we think that Herod was buried. The splendor and the majesty and the awesomeness of that complex was a display for the world to see that it was about Herod. That Herod was the man. That Herod was the king of kings. That Herod had all the power. That Herod had all the, the, the might. That Herod had all the majesty. So you've got, he is screaming to the world, it is all about me. Herod is. Matthew chapter 1. I want you to see the sovereignty in this. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Female. There weren't no females in people's lineages back then. I guess there had to be. They just weren't written down. Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Salmon was the father of Boaz. Rahab was Boaz's mama. Rahab was a hooker, y'all. She was a hooker. Not only a female in the lineage of Christ, but she was a prostitute. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. Ruth wasn't a Jew. Ruth was a Moabitess. So now we've got three women already in the lineage. And they didn't put women in lineages. And they're women of ill repute. They're pagans. So Ruth and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Here's another woman, Uriah's wife. They didn't even want to mention her name, but it was Bathsheba was Uriah's wife. An adulterous relationship between King David and Bathsheba, Solomon is the child. Solomon is the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was a good king. There's good kings in the lineage. There's horrible kings in the lineage, and there's some in the middle. Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. Joram was a terrible king. Joram was the father of Uzziah, Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and and Jotham, Jotham was the father of Ahaz, Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah was one of the greatest kings Israel ever saw, but his son Manasseh was probably the worst king in the history of Israel, nasty, brutal, terrible, did evil in the sight of the Lord, Manasseh, but Manasseh was the father of Amos, and Amos was the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Israel's deported to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. God uses everything and everybody at his disposal to get done what he wants to get done. It's been said before that everything you ever needed to know about Christianity, you can find it in the genealogy in Matthew 1, 1 verses uh, through 17. Now I want you to raise your hand if you zoned out somewhere on that before I got to the end. Tell the truth. All right, I get it. How many of you, when you come to a section like this in the Bible, and there's tons of them, that you just skip over it all together or you just kind of ignore it? Be truthful. Because it's like just too much. Just pronouncing the names is just too much. Some people like genealogies, man. Some people don't. I love genealogies because there's so much history in there. Some people don't like their genealogy because they're scared of what they might find in their genealogy. And Matthew, the Jew begins his account of the life of, of Christ with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. And then it goes on from Jacob to Judah and his brothers and on and on. Y'all, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. <clears throat> Isaac had another son. Jacob had a twin brother named Esau, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Do you see Esau's name in that genealogy? No, you don't. Why is that? Because God gets to choose however he wants to because he's God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Esau. Genesis 25, verse 21 says, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. Isaac's wife was Rebekah because she was barren. Barren means she couldn't have babies. And the Lord granted his prayer. Rebekah, his wife, conceived. She got pregnant. The children, the text of the Bible says, struggled. The children, who struggled? Jacob and Esau struggled within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. So Esau's born. Esau's born first. Esau's the older brother. Jacob is born second. He's the younger brother. From Esau's lineage, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Esau. From Esau's lineage comes the Edomites. If you look at a map, you'll see sometimes it says Edom, sometimes it says Edomia. But it was the Edomites traced right back to Esau when Moses was leading Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery. And he brings the people to the edge of Edom and he asks the Edomite king if they can pass through. He says no. And he turns them around and goes the other way. Edom would not let them cross. Saul, there have been enmity between Esau's line and Jacob's line since the get-go. Saul, Israel's first king, fought with them. David conquered Edom. In fact, David uh, killed 18,000 of their soldiers in the Valley of Salt. Out of Jacob, Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Esau, the Edomites. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. And the Jews came out of Jacob's line. And the prophecy was that Esau and his family would serve the younger Jacob and his family. That prophecy is reiterated in Numbers 24 when Balaam and the prophet said in verse 17, a star will come out of Jacob. It doesn't say a star will come out of Esau, does it? Why? Because God gets to do what He wants to do because He's God. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter, it says, will rise out of Israel. That's Jacob's other name. And it goes on and it says, Edom will be conquered. It says in the text in Numbers, but Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob or Israel. What was in the Jews' mind was that some day, someone from the line of Jacob was going to be in power. And the Jews looked on the Edomites with disdain because they said they were half Jewish. They worshipped their own gods. In fact, they worshipped mostly the goddess of fertility. So what does all this Esau and Jacob and Isaac and Edom stuff have anything to do with Christmas in 2019? What does it have to do with anything? Reckon where Herod came from. Herod was an Edomite. Herod was in the line of Esau. Herod was a descendant of Esau and all the glory and all the power and all the influence of the day belonged to King Herod. And in this town over there that's pointing, you got the Herodian. Bethlehem is over there. And we're talking not that far. And in that town over there a little bitty baby's born. And you're asked to believe that the baby that's born where that arrow is pointing one of those little Judean hillsides, you're asked to believe, in a cave with a bunch of animals. And don't think the manger was some pretty nice, fluffy, warm place. It wasn't. It was a nasty cave. And you're asked to believe that the baby that's born over there is a descendant of Jacob. The Jews of the day asked to believe that the baby that is born literally in the shadow of Herod is the king of the world. Literally in a shadow When the sun is in the east, there is a shadow that is cast from that hillside, from the Herodian, onto where we think Christ was born in those hills, on one of those caves. Literally in the shadow of Herod, you're asked to believe the most unlikely of stories. Like, God is just full of unlikely stories. That the Savior of the world came into the world as a helpless, defenseless little baby boy. Not the big bad king that's over here, but this little baby. And that is what you're asked to believe. Now I know to be the best, you've got to beat the best. And if I'm God, and you know, let me back up a little bit. This unlikely of stories. Read the Bible, y'all. God just paints crazy, un- look at Paul. Paul's the guy he picks to write most of the New Testament. Paul's killing folks. And he meets Christ on the Damascus Road. And he does a 180. Unlikely story. I look at my own life. I never would have thought in 10 bajillion years that I would be standing here preaching the gospel. I did not even know what the gospel was. God picks and uses and chooses the most unlikely people to accomplish what it is that he wants to accomplish. Here is a perfect case of that. And I know to be the best, you got to beat the best. And if I'm God, and I'm not, but if I'm God and it's time for me to show up on the scene, I'm not looking to whoop some punk, right? I want to whoop the best. you got the biggest, baddest, most powerful king on the planet versus a little baby in a cave. If I'm LSU... I'm not looking to play the UMass Minutemen. If I'm LSU, I want me some Clemson or I want me some Ohio State. I don't want some sorry little team. So you have this little baby that is born in a cave who is going to whoop the biggest, baddest king that ever lived. And Herod, like just think about the power. Think about the power that he wielded. The magnificence of what he built. And it's all in ruins today. You saw the ruins of what's left of the Herodian. And all you probably ever knew about Herod was that he killed some babies at Christmas time. Because Herod was in it for himself. It was all about himself. It was all about pointing everything to himself. And worse than that, he was a descendant of Esau as much spiritually as he was physically. And then what about this baby that is born in that cave over there? As far as I know, he didn't build one single building that we know of. He didn't write one single book that we know of. No stone that he ever touched can we point to for sure. There's not even a mark on the specific place that he was born for sure. We don't even know specifically where he died for sure or where he was resurrected for sure. We don't know exactly where the ascension was for sure. And sure, there are theories and maybe there's good theories, but we don't know For sure. But look what he left behind. The world has never, ever, ever been the same. We got a couple of hundred people in here probably with varying degrees of influence in this room. But I don't think anybody would look at anybody in this room and say they're the power brokers of the day. They're the power brokers of 2019 in Columbus, Georgia. I don't imagine, I don't think, that there's any presidents in this room I don't imagine that there are are any congressmen or senators in this room. I don't imagine there's any movie actors or actresses, except for maybe Susan, in in this room. No professional athletes in this room, at least that I know of. But you know what? When we look at our world and we look at the power, particularly the power of evil, it seems so big and it seems so strong and it seems so influential that what could me and you, what could we do? But here's what you're asked to believe. That no matter what it looks like out there, no matter what it looks like in, in your world that you live in, no matter how bad it looks, no matter how grim it looks, no matter how strong the stronghold may seem like, no matter how bad things seem to be, no matter how undefeatable poverty and hunger and homelessness and racism, no matter how bad all of that looks, Jesus Christ is king. It's not Herod. It's not the devil. It's not evil. Jesus Christ is the king of kings. The king of kings. The Lord of lords. Not all the other stuff. The truth is there weren't many people that could come and look at that baby and say I believe it. So now the question that you've got to answer, truth is a question that I've got to answer, is do you and I dare to believe, do we dare to believe, do we dare to live as if God is stronger than the evil that we face in our own lives? Do we dare to live as if God is stronger than the strongest stronghold on your life? Well, I don't care what it is. Do we dare to live that like God is stronger? Do I dare, do you dare to live as if the power that we have with us, the Holy Spirit, we talked about Him last week, the comforter, the advocate, our advocate, living inside of us. Do we dare to live as if if the power that lives inside of us is greater than any power that we could ever face in our entire life. I don't care what the power is. I don't care what what the stronghold is. It makes no difference. Do we dare to live that way and I and I and I think I think that many times, I think often that we don't live like that. In other words, maybe we've lived like Herod or the modern Herod, meaning the evil that is in our day, the stronghold that is in your life, whatever whatever that may be. I think maybe we've lived like like that is stronger. And we've crawled into our little cocoons, maybe, and we've said that the evil, you know what? The evil's too big, and it's too strong, and it's too powerful. That God is not big enough or strong enough or powerful enough to do anything about it. Y'all, this palace that we looked at on the screen, the fortress, the massive Herodian, Here's what it tells us, that no matter what it looks like, because in that day those people looked at that fortress and they thought, we can do nothing about Rome. We can do nothing about King Herod. And so that massive palace tells us that no matter how powerful it seems, that it is the baby in the manger that is the Lord of heaven and earth. It is the baby in the manger who is the king of kings. And so Matthew the Jew starts his gospel with these incredible words in the days of Herod the king Jesus was born. We started this morning looking at Galatians 4:4 uh, when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son born of a it goes on born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So you got to know that he was born on mission. He was born on mission that sweet innocent seemingly helpless child was born on an eternal mission and Paul says that mission was to redeem mankind. Hebrews 2:14 says through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, and that is the devil. So y'all, he was born to die. There'd be no Easter without Christmas. And at the end of the day that that death and that resurrection destroyed the devil and the hold that he has on you. Whatever the hair it is in your life, that death and that resurrection destroys that hold. Even when that stronghold is really, really, really strong and nasty and brutal, and in the middle, right in the middle of that, his birth and his death provide victory over it. Christmas and Easter provide 100% of what you and I need. And all you have to do is say yes. All you have to do, y'all, is invite him in. Repent of the sin. Confess that he is the Lord. And believe that He rose again. Ask Him to save you. If you are an unbeliever, if you, if you are lost, and you may not even know what those words mean, if you have never asked Christ to save you, if you have never said yes to that offer, let today be the day. Let today be the day. And if you'd like to do that today, I want to give, I, every Sunday I want to give you that opportunity. So I'd ask you all, to, to bow your heads, close your eyes. And if this is you and today is the day that you're done with that stronghold and you want that that baby in the manger, the King of Kings, to save you, just repeat these words after me to yourself or out loud, it makes no difference. Save me, Jesus, right now. I repent of my sins, Lord, I repent of my sins. I confess with my mouth that You are the Lord of Lords. You are the King of Kings. And I believe that You rose from the grave. Lord, I believe that that death on that cross redeemed me and bought me back. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, y'all, if, if that's you and, that, and you did that today, this is going to be the best Christmas. I told you last week, my first Christmas in 2001 as a believer. Dude, it was National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And it was the most awesome thing. And Susan and I were baptized together on Christmas Eve of 2001. It was awesome. And so if that is you, you're going to have the best Christmas ever. And you may have celebrated Christmas for 35 years, but you ain't never celebrated it as a believer, as a saved sinner. Because there's only two kinds of people on the planet, lost sinners and saved sinners, right? And you you will celebrate the first one as a saved sinner and we rejoice with you and if that is you today I'd ask you to fill out that connection card that's in this thing or that's on a seat back in front of you and let us know because we want to pray for you and come alongside of you our prayer team is in the back they're back there every Sunday and I'd ask you to go back there and talk to them or come up and talk to me and Susan just talk to somebody because it is a life changing life altering decision that you made I want to wish y'all a very, very, very Merry Christmas. And I hope to see you on uh, Christmas Eve.